Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Homegrown Horticulture Podcast. Today, I'm going to be answering questions I've received through social media and over the phone about yards and gardens. The Homegrown Horticulture Podcast is specifically for the Intermountain West, an area with a very unique climate and very unique soils that's oftentimes forgotten about by national horticulture companies. Because of this, there's a need for local information, and the Homegrown Horticulture Podcast is a source for you to gain that information. Our first question is, when can I plant warm season crops? These would include things like cucumbers, tomatoes, peppers, green beans, corn, eggplants, muskmelons, and watermelon. The first thing I would recommend, because this is a regional podcast and average frost states can vary wildly just within a few miles, is to contact a local experienced gardener or farmer. They'll know right when it's time to get those warm season crops in for your specific area. Now some other things to monitor are when your average last and first frost dates are because all of the warm season crops should be planted after the average last frost. Hi, this is Future Ton here and I wanted to interject really quickly in that what I said about planting after your average first frost is true. However, There are some instances, such as green beans and corn, that can go into the soil before the average last frost. Not too much before, but sometimes a week to two weeks ahead. I just wanted to get that in there and clarify. And now back to the podcast. For the Wasatch Front in Utah, this is generally early to mid-May, but for our mountain valleys... This is usually two to three weeks later, oftentimes in late May or early June. Along these lines, I had somebody ask about a week ago if they could just go ahead and put all of their warm season flowers and crops in because they checked the weather and we were going to be above freezing daily. And my response to them was, sure, yeah, you can plant, but the temperatures are still too cold for those to actually thrive And many crops, such as tomatoes, can actually be damaged if they're regularly exposed to temperatures below about 45 to 50 degrees. So if you're going to plant warm season crops when it's too cool, even if they don't freeze, they generally will just sit there. Oftentimes they can get nutrient deficiencies because the cool weather makes it harder for them to uptake nutrients. If you're going to put them out early, you'll need to use season extending methods that warm the soil up and warm the air temperature up so that they can actually thrive. You need to remember that many of these flowers and crops are native to Mediterranean climate areas and oftentimes tropical areas where they're never exposed to temperatures near freezing. And so we need to mimic those conditions for those plants to actually thrive in our yards and gardens. Our next question is, last spring we bought some grass seed to overseed our lawn to thicken the grass up. We never did it. Can we go ahead and put that same seed down now? The answer to this is yes, you can go ahead and put that seed down. It will hold for a couple of years and still germinate quite well. I think the more important thing, though, is going to be preparing your turf grass so that you can get good germination from that seed you're putting over the top. To do this, you're going to want to ask yourself, why is my lawn struggling? 
you know, if you're just moving in and it was neglected for a year or two, that's understandable. But if you've lived there and been doing your best to take care of the lawn and that lawn is still thinning out, then what's going on? You know, oftentimes our sprinkling system is the culprit because it doesn't water very efficiently to where some areas get excessive water and other areas don't get enough. So checking the sprinkling system to make sure that it's irrigating evenly and properly is going to be imperative. After checking this sprinkling system, the next thing I would look at is the soil itself. Now, oftentimes, if the grass is done well in the soil and all of a sudden started to fade, it's not going to be a soil problem. But if it never really thrived, then you definitely want to do some soil testing. In this case, the store-bought soil tests you can pick up for $10 or $15 are probably not going to be sufficient. You are going to want your state's land-grant university, which should have a soil lab to test that soil for salinity, for pH level, for the amount of phosphorus, which may be reported as P2O5, and the amount of potassium, which would be reported sometimes as K2O. Another factor that needs to be considered is soil compaction. Soil compaction commonly causes lawn problems because the roots don't penetrate very deeply into the soil. Because of this, it's really common to develop a very thick thatch layer and just really unhealthy turf that might green up but never really grows well. If you have extremely clay soil where you live, then the same thing can happen where the roots of the grass don't really penetrate into the soil that well or that deeply and it can develop lots of thatch. As mentioned earlier, use hollow core aeration to remedy this. Leave the plugs on top of your lawn and let them disintegrate back into the thatch. The soil that's introduced will help break the thatch down more quickly by introducing more microorganisms into the thatch layer. For lawns that are grown in clay soil, compacted soil, or lawns that receive a lot of foot traffic, it is beneficial to aerate both in the spring and fall. And so to get back to the question of can I use my one-year-old grass seed to top dress my lawn, absolutely yes, but just go through the procedures and see if you can figure out why it is thin if you already have not, and then you'll have better success. To top dress, I would use about one to two pounds per thousand square feet of whatever grass seed you chose. If the grass is super thin, you could actually kick that up to three to four pounds per thousand square feet. Our next question is also lawn related. It is, we are building a home and we want to grow a lawn from seed, not sod. And you tell us how to prepare. I purposely did not list the city in this question, but I am familiar with their growing conditions and the soil has a lot of clay in it. And many areas the city also has salt problems, and so I thought this was quite an appropriate question. I mentioned previously soil testing, and it would really be good to get a soil sample collected and submit it to your land-grant university that tests soil. For Utah State University, you would access the website usual.usu.edu, usual.usu.edu. You would want what Utah State University calls the routine test, and that's where you get your soil texture, the pH, the salinity, phosphorus, and potassium levels all measured to know if you need to add any into the soil. It also lets you know if your salt levels are too high, I will include some fact sheets in the show notes on how to potentially reduce your salinity levels in your soil. 
the next step after soil testing is to decide where you're actually going to need turf. This involves looking at your plot map and mapping on there where you're actually going to need grass, just like you would plant a garden or where you would put a shed. These areas could include where children and grandchildren might play, where kids might practice for sports, where you may hold garden parties, or you need some turf because of frequent traffic between two spots. In general, if you're confused about how to plan where to put turf and how to plan your landscapes, the Jordan Valley Water Conservancy District, through their Conservation Garden Park and Public Outreach, has a series of free online classes on how to plan a landscape to be beautiful, functional, and to reduce water use by up to 50%. Their methods involve no sagebrush, no cattle skulls, and you oftentimes wouldn't notice the difference between a local scape yard as compared to a traditional yard because they're so well planned. I've included the hyperlink to the local scapes courses in the show notes. Once you've decided where you're going to put turf in your yard, the next step is to make sure that your sprinkling system is sufficient to actually water the grass. One of the biggest water wasters we have are sprinkler inefficiencies, and a recommended visit online would be to slowtheflow.org if you live in Utah and in a qualifying area to have a water audit performed for you or to find instructions on how to do your own water audit so that you can make sure that your sprinkling system is working as well as possible. Once this is out of the way, the next step is to prepare your soil. The soil should be tilled to a depth of 6 inches, and as you do this, it's always a good idea to incorporate 2 to 3 inches of compost into the soil if you can afford it. You don't need the most expensive compost to where stuff from your local green waste facility or even your local sewer plant would be fine because you're not going to use this for your vegetable garden. It's going toward prepping the soil for your lawn. Once the soil has been tilled to a depth of 6 inches, the next step is to level the soil. It's just easier to do this with a landscape rake if you're doing it on your own. A landscape rake can cost upwards of $30 to $40, but as compared to rakes you would use to, say, rake thatch out of your lawn or rake garden soil, the landscape rakes are nice because they get the soil a lot more even. Once you're done with this, you should be able to put about a half-inch footprint in the soil. One other thing you may consider if you have your sprinkling system done is running the sprinkling system for 15 minutes to settle the soil because oftentimes as you're raking the soil gets so fluffy that you have everything nice and level but as soon as you get water on it it will sink up to a couple of inches in spots. Running your irrigation system prior to seeding will tell you if you have any of these spots that need to be fixed. We are finally going to get to what grass seed I would actually use because I know the soil is probably clay and potentially slightly salty. In this situation, I'm going to recommend a turf-type tall fescue. These are grasses that look like Kentucky bluegrass. They mow like Kentucky bluegrass and are just as dark green. The turf-type tall fescue varieties also grow a little bit better in clay soil and tolerate much more salt than Kentucky bluegrass. They're also potentially somewhat more drought-hardy because they root much more deeply into the soil. I have included a fact sheet in the show notes explaining common turf grass mixes 
including turf-type tall fescue, Kentucky bluegrass, and others that will be more drought-hardy but have some other considerations. Spread the seed at a rate of about 6 pounds per thousand square feet to have quicker establishment. You would use an inexpensive fertilizer spreader to spread your seed over the soil. What I would recommend doing is just applying it lightly and going in a different direction two or three times to make sure you at least got some seed everywhere to minimize the chance that you accidentally missed a few spots where you're trying to get seed. Once the seed is down, I personally do not like to rake it in. I'm just not good enough and what will happen as I rake it is you can see spots where I raked all the seed away and then there's a clump where the seed is growing really thickly where I accidentally dragged too much. Instead of raking the seed into the soil, I like to get compost, usually from my local green waste facility. I make sure that it's fairly finely ground. I will use a feed scoop or a dust pan and put the compost in there and then just very gently sprinkle it over the seed so that it's about a quarter to a third of an inch thick. After the grass seed is down and you start watering it, it will usually germinate within about 10 days to 2 weeks and finish germinating after about 3 to 4 weeks. The final question is about Japanese maples. And it's kind of a compilation of several questions. I've had many people call asking why their Japanese maple either died or has several branches that are dead from over the last winter. As the name implies, Japanese maples are native to Japan, and Japan has a fairly humid, moist climate, somewhat similar, at least in the northern part of the country, to Seattle and Portland. And so when you plant Japanese maples in a very arid climate like the Wasatch Front or the Front Range or over toward Reno or Boise, the trees just aren't adapted to the lack of humidity that they would normally experience and also are very hot sun. And so when Japanese maples are planted in the Intermountain West, they oftentimes struggle and they need to be planted on the east or north sides of buildings or where they're going to get consistent afternoon shade. Additionally, the lacier the leaves on the Japanese maples, the harder they are to take care of. Japanese maples are also susceptible to iron chlorosis. For more about iron chlorosis, you can reference our previous episode from two weeks ago. But I'm often asked, is there a way to salvage them or to make them survive better? And my answer is usually to just not plant them. And if you have to, be willing to take the risk of them being damaged or dying. It often happens that they're healthy for 5 or 10 years and then all of a sudden they have a hard winter and they decline. Most Japanese maples are hardy down to zone 5 or 6, and so if you live in a zone 4 location, they should not be planted in these areas. I am often asked what I'm often asked what kind of replacement tree or shrub could be used for Japanese maple and there's really and there's really not that many out there. One that is often suggested includes elderberry. There are several newer lace leaf forms out in various colors, including yellow, green, and red. These will tolerate hotter locations than Japanese maple and are more cold hardy than Japanese maple. They are somewhat susceptible to iron chlorosis, but at least as far as survivability are a more sure option than what Japanese maples are. 
Well, that is going to wrap it up for this week. I greatly appreciate you listening. The Homegrown Horticulture Podcast is a production of Utah State University Extension. Show music was composed and performed by Savannah Peterson, a Utah State University horticulture assistant. Contributions to the podcast were also made behind the scenes by Michaela McGuire and Heather Thompson. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.